Amen. Thank you, John, for sharing your story about how God delights in taking the everyday things and just bringing something special into them. Well, welcome everyone to week number two of our series, Pre-Prayer, where we are exploring how we can deepen our relationship with God through prayer. Now, last week, I began by suggesting that God has prepared a place of prayer, and it's hidden in Christ and accessed only by faith. That basically means that we pursue prayer out of the reality of intimacy, not as a desire for intimacy. The calling to pray is a heavenly calling because we've been seated by God in Christ in heavenly places. And so when we pray, it's a priority to pursue the heavenly perspective, not the earthly perspective. Prayer. Today I want to continue that thought by suggesting that God has prepared a place of prayer for you by gifting you the Spirit who makes it possible for you to take your eyes off the earthly and actually fix them on the heavenly, on Christ in whom you are hidden. Now, maintaining that heavenly perspective isn't easy. It requires that we live as people of the Spirit, and without the Spirit, what we'll discover is that often what fuels our prayers don't always and doesn't always satisfy our soul. And when we forsake that heavenly perspective, when we neglect the task that the Spirit has in leading our prayer, then what we'll discover is that our prayers will often become more earthly. That doesn't mean sinful, it just means earthly. So today I want to explore the connection between natural prayer, what I'm going to call earthy prayer, and heavenly prayer. And I'm going to suggest that many of us struggle in our prayer life because we forget that prayer is something that's prepared by God that enables us to tap into God's perspective on our life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The key thing that you have to discern, you have to hold this in mind when I take you to places that may be uncomfortable for you to go, is that there is a difference between natural prayer and carnal prayer. There is a difference between the natural and the carnal. The natural is introduced by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says there's a difference between the natural and the spiritual person. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he goes on to talk about the, the spiritual and the carnal. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. So when I take you to places and I ask you questions like, when it comes to certain things in your life, are you praying naturally here or spiritually? I'm not necessarily saying that you're praying sinfully. I'm saying that maybe there's a level to which your prayers must ascend. Hold on to that. The natural and the spiritual. Now, in order to kind of get to where we need to go today, I want to jump into the life of Jacob, who is a man who perfectly illustrates for us how difficult it is to stop viewing life from the natural and to focus on the spiritual, on the eternal purposes of God. 
Jacob was a very natural man. Doesn't mean he's sinful. Just means he's very earthy. And what we discover in Jacob's life is that even after he encounters God, it takes him quite a while and quite a lot of struggle before he's broken to the point where he's willing to embrace God for who God is and God's promises for what they are. For Jacob, it's an uphill climb. Hence the title of today's message, The Heavenly Climb. What we're going to discover is maintaining that heavenly perspective isn't always easy. But bless God, if we are in Christ, He has given us the Spirit that makes it possible. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're going to jump into the life of Jacob, and we're going to look at Jacob's life through four acts. We're going to then move from there to kind of draw out four principles, four lessons from his life that will help us work through the reality that far too often our prayers are more natural than they are spiritual. So that's where we're going to go. To do this, I'm going to use a lot of the, the big screen. I love the screen on days like this because I can put the whole thing up there and if you're going to take a photograph, wait till the end and you'll get it all, okay? And then, what does that mean? If you're in your balcony, oops, you're going to have to, hopefully, you got your glasses on. By the way, somebody said, I didn't realize you wear glasses. COVID, folks. Ran out of contact lenses, left the state, had to wait 17 days to get an appointment. So next week, I'm back with my contacts. But for now, this is it. But the point with this is, if you're in the balcony, you may struggle to see me because I'm not going to be on the screen for a little bit, okay? But we will get there. But this is where we're going to start. We're going to look at Jacob's life in four acts, okay? Act number one, this is where the story begins. The story begins with Jacob in hiding for his own protection. He's cheated his brother. He's deceived his father, okay? But bless God, he's embraced by God. This is where his story begins. He's in hiding for his own protection. And so he's running. And what did we discover last week? We discovered it doesn't matter how far you've sunk, how far you've run. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's love means he embraces you. It's true for this cheater and this deceiver too. So this is where it begins. What I want to do is, if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis 28. And I want us to read Genesis 28, noting that this is Jacob's first encounter with God. Okay, up until this point, Jacob has been living off his parents' faith. So the way he responds is by what he knows, but then he personalizes it. Let's have a look at this. Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 21. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. Now look at what God promises him. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are laying. Your descendants will 
be like the dust of the earth, and you, they will, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. Hold on to that, right? This is what God is promising him. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What does God say? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bring you back here. And I'm not going to leave you until all of this has been accomplished. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Lutz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking. Now, what has God said? God has already said that He's going to do that. If God will be with me and He will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Again, this is Jacob's first encounter with God. He knew of his parents' faith. This is now the moment where he has the opportunity to make his parents' faith his own. And we're told that this visitation from God scared him. Now, his confession is heartfelt. His worship is heartfelt. But he responds in the way he knows, by making a vow. A vow is basically a response to God where we promise to sacrifice something to God. As we'll see in just a second, Jacob's vow reveals that he's still stuck in his earthly mindset. He's still stuck in his situation. He responds to God in this vow in a way that doesn't enable him to fully embrace and engage in what God is saying. All he can see is the situation that he's in. Natural earthly response. See, Jacob is at this point still a very natural man. Remember, natural is not carnal. It's natural. He's viewing life, even his life with God, on the basis of what he experiences, not on the basis of what God has said. This is where he's at. Act number one. Now, in act number two, this is where we start to explore this earthly side, this natural side. Jacob had a natural ability to influence people. He got his brother, he sought to basically sell him the birthright just for a bowl of soup. He could influence his mother so that his mother made, basically made him the favorite. And everywhere he goes after this, he could influence anybody and everybody. He was a natural man if ever there was one. And even after this encounter, not knowing any different, he actually uses his own instincts to interpret life and even try and kind of manipulate God a little bit here. Jacob shows us that it is possible to miss heavenly significance because we're too focused on our earthly struggle. And the work that God was going to have to do in Jacob's life was basically to turn his eyes heavenward. Get his eyes off his predicament and start to determine his life on the basis of what God said, not on what he felt he needed. 
This is that earthly struggle coming through. Now, we see it in the context of the prayer that he prays. It's what we call an if-then prayer. He throws a fleece up. God has said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless you wherever you go, and I'm going to bring you back to this place, and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. He basically takes, God takes the promise he made to Abraham and actually gives it to Jacob. Compare the two responses between Abraham and, and between Jacob. Very different. Jacob responds with an if-then prayer. Let's look at this. This is specifically what he says. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and I put this in there because this is implied, separate clause, if God will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return to my father's household, God has already said that he would, then the Lord will be my God. Do you see the earthly coming through this? Do you see his personal wrestle in, in his own stage in life coming through this? I feel like asking on the basis of what's said, hey, Jacob, if God doesn't give you the food and clothes because he just promised to take care of you, but that includes it. But if God doesn't give you the, the type of food you want and the type of clothes that you want, who's going to be your God then? See, because he's polytheistic society, you'll see later on in the story that Jacob consecrates himself by getting rid of all of these other gods. He's throwing up this fleece and basically says, well, God, if you kind of do it what I want and the way that I think it needs to be done, then I will make you my God. The whole point of the revelation to Abraham is that there is no other God beside me. Second thing is, well, if God doesn't do it the way that you want him to do, Jacob, who are you going to tithe to then? It's so earthly, it's so conditional through the whole thing. Jacob is basically responding on the basis of a struggle. He's running from his brother and he's afraid for his life. All he sees is what he needs. Let me ask you, have you ever been there? I have. And I'm pretty sure we've all been in a crisis to the point that when someone shared a heavenly truth to us, we heard it, but we didn't embrace it and we didn't engage with it. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, it, you'll know that all too often when we share something with someone, the last thing we want to hear is the truth, right? Because it doesn't necessarily help the way we're feeling. So we would never say, hey, I don't want to hear the truth right now, but that's often what we'll do. We'll respond to a crisis in a very earthly way without embracing and engaging with the truth because we're too embroiled in the circumstances that we're facing. But we need to understand to hear in the Scriptures is not to listen. To listen in the Scriptures is biological. To hear is spiritual. It's to engage with it. It's to do something with it. And what we need to recognize is that if we're ever going to pray from the heavenly perspective, we must hear, we must embrace and engage with God and what God says, even when our reality sometimes may cause us to wonder how that could ever be true. Now, I want you to note something, please. Jacob's problem is not that he is worldly. He asks for what? Food and clothes. Paul in 1 Timothy 
in chapter 6 talks about godliness and contentment like this. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. What Jacob is asking for is not extravagant. He's in the middle of a crisis, and he doesn't know how he is going to escape from his brother's wrath. And I think there's a lesson in this for us. It's easy in the middle of a crisis to interpret life from an earthly vantage point. But again, what does the Bible say? Say, if you are a follower of Christ because of your position in Christ, you have the ability to bring divine perspective to bear on every aspect of your life. The difference being a Christian makes in a crisis is that a Christian can always take God's perspective into account. Notice I'm being unequivocal here. The difference being a Christian makes is that you can always take God's perspective into account. If you've been joining with us over these 21 days of prayer and fasting, you'll notice that this week we spent a lot of time in Romans 8.26. Somebody came to me before the services and even indeed in between services and said, as a result of just staying on this verse all week, I realized something about praying, the Spirit praying in groans that I'd never discovered before. See, sometimes when we pray and we are interpreting life from the earthly, the Spirit of God makes it possible for us to focus on the heavenly. Now, sometimes we're unable to bear that, which is why it's a groan and not audible, because sometimes I think some of us are so set in our earthly ways that if we could understand what the Spirit's groans were, we'd ask Him to stop. The Spirit of God makes it possible for us to discern God's perspective. And this is that lesson in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 about the natural, the earthly, and the spiritual. Now, this section that I'm about to read begins from verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and extends until verse 16. Read it at home. Get the full context. I haven't got time for that. You realize that when you're looking at your watch closer to the end. All I would ask you to do is don't pray an earthly prayer right there. Okay, But I want to read verses 12 through 14 because they're really important in this conversation. This is what Paul writes. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Listen for this part. Not in words taught us by human wisdom doesn't say the devil's wisdom. It's not sinful wisdom. It says human wisdom. But in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Not explaining spirit realities with human-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Friends, there is a wisdom that all Christians have by mere fact that we have the Spirit of God living in us. 
It is natural for us to interpret life from the natural point of view. But bless God, when we are in Christ, in heavenly places, God has gifted us His Spirit to enable us to what? Discern God's thoughts. But God's perspective only comes when we yield or when we surrender. And what we're going to see in the next part of the story of Jacob is that that only happened for him once God broke him of all of his pride and gave him no other option other than to face the consequences of his own choices. This is Act 3. It's brokenness. God prepares a place for prayer for us by actually breaking us of all of our pride. Life continues to be a constant struggle for Jacob. And guess what? Bless God. God answers his prayer. He has food. He has clothes. In fact, he gets so prosperous that other people are envious of him. He's got everything. But in an encounter with God in Genesis chapter 32, he still asks for blessing. You see, when we pray from the earthly, even having the answers to our prayers does not satisfy our soul. That's why we are to pray for the heavenly, because then our soul is satisfied. So in this part of the story, what happens? Rachel continues his journey. He meets Rachel. He falls in love with Rachel. He goes to Laban, Rachel's dad, and says, hey, could you please allow me to marry uh, Rachel? I will even work seven years for that to happen. And, and so he works seven years, and then on the wedding day, they get married. He wakes up the next morning, and oops, Jacob, the trickster, realizes he's been tricked. It's Leah he marries, not Rachel. He is so angry. He is so frustrated, but he loves Rachel too much to let her go. So he goes back to Laban and says, here's what I'm going to do. I would work for you another seven years if I can marry Rachel. Laban agrees. And so he does. His one constant struggle. Jacob gets successful in this period, but his success causes envy from Laban's sons. And Jacob fears for his life. God appears to him again in chapter 31, tells him, hey, Jacob, I'm the God. Do you remember me, the guy that appeared to you in Bethel? Uh, what I need you to do is to run again for your life. So he ran for his life. And uh, then what happens in chapter 31, verse 29, is Laban finds out that Jacob has ran. He pursues him. I think it's for seven days. And then they finally catch up with him. And uh, just as uh, Jacob is fearing the worst here, Laban says, hey, Jacob, I have a right to kill you for what you've done, but your God, God appeared to me and told me not to lay a single hand on you, and so I won't. Jacob here is obviously trying to work everything through. And if that isn't enough for him in chapter 32. Now he's facing the reality that Esau is coming to meet him. And it's here in chapter 32 as he's preparing to face Esau that Jacob is finally broken. And in chapter 32 and verse 10, Jacob prays the most honest prayer that he's ever prayed in his life. He says this, I am unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. Finally, he gets it. He's been unworthy all along. God has been orchestrating things, doing things that Jacob can't control. 
See, he was a natural influencer, but there are some things that Jacob could not control. He could not influence Laban. And Jacob, in this moment, realizes that Jacob has no power to influence Esau at all. He is fearful. He splits his groups up into two. And guess what happens in chapter 32? Esau comes to Jacob, and rather than being angry with him, he embraces him. They weep, and there is reconciliation in this moment. Nothing Jacob could have done to prepare it. And see, everything starts to turn in Jacob's life from this moment. But the point is, Jacob initially responded to the encounter with God from an earthly perspective, looking only at what he needed earthly. But God was working behind the scenes to break Jacob of all of his pride, all of his self-effort, and bring him to the point of realizing that there were some things he could not do on his own. There was a higher power at work here. God was at work here that Jacob needed to embrace. Now, Jacob still had wrestles and struggles, but through it all, his faith deepens and comes clearer into view. And this is the final section of the story of Jacob where we start to see this man finally starting to turn his gaze heavenward. It's been an uphill climb to get to this point, but he's finally getting it. After being broken, Jacob returned to God. And what we discover is his brokenness preceded the fulfillment of God's promises, but it also prepared him to acknowledge that what fueled his prayers in that initial encounter, food and clothes, didn't actually satisfy his soul at all. And friends, in exactly the same way, our brokenness, I believe, not only prepares the way for God's blessing, but it actually prepares us to pray in the Spirit. And that basically means to rise above the feeling that I always need to pray according to how I'm viewing the world in which I live. Now, what do we see? We start to see things turning around. It's amazing. After that honesty in chapter 31 and 32, we start to see Jacob's life turn around. His family's restored. Esau arrives. The brothers embrace then in chapter 34, he has a struggle again. This time, it's not of his own accord. It's not of his own making. But at the end of that chapter, in chapter 34, Jacob says, what have you done to me? Where am I going to go? I've got nowhere to hide. And in this moment, God comes to him and said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to journey back to Bethel where it all began. And this time, I want you to hide yourself in me. This is where it all turns. And there in, on the road to chapter, uh, 30, in chapter 35, on the road to Bethel, Jacob consecrates himself. He surrenders, he yields, even before he's gone back to his father's household, even before everything else has happened. In this moment, he embraces what God has said and he surrenders. He gets rid of all of the idols and his life is now going to be lived with God's perspective in mind. Let's have a read of this, Genesis 35, 1 through 7, and, and you see it here. You see the surrender. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar uh, there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Go back to where it all began. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Suddenly he gets it. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, their rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon all the towns all around him, so that no one pursued him. 
Jacob and all the people with them came to Lutz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar, and he called the place Albethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. And it's here, after this moment, that God formally bestows on Jacob a change of name, makes him Israel. And if you read the text from this moment on, Jacob is then referred to as Israel. Chapter 32, 28, the idea is introduced, and it's uh, just acted upon there in 35, verse 10. He's finally embraced life as God sees it. That's the life of Jacob. I think when we look at this life, we recognize that just because we've had an encounter with God that may have freaked us, but is certainly real to us, it doesn't necessarily mean that embracing life and living it from God's perspective is natural and automatic. In fact, for most of us, it's a struggle, and it will result in us being broken in order to be blessed. It is possible for you and for me to experience exactly the same thing that Jacob did. Just because God has prepared a place of prayer for us through the finished work of Christ, and just because it is true that I'm seated with God in Christ in heavenly places, that does not mean that you and I can interpret automatically life from a heavenly perspective. It's not as easy as that. The good news is God has prepared a place for you and for me He's prepared that place of prayer, and He has gifted you and I, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to turn our focus on the Christ in whom we are hidden. This is the Jacob story. This is our story too. So let's get practical here. If God has provided a place of prayer, and it's hidden in Christ, accessed by faith, and if God has provided me the gift of the Holy Spirit to help me focus my attention and my thoughts on the Christ in whom I am hidden, then the real question is this, how do I escape the earthly means of interpreting my life? If, if this is true, everything we've said over the last couple of weeks is what God does to prepare us for prayer, then how do we pray from a heavenly perspective? If it is so natural for us to pray and to interpret life from an earthly perspective, how do we get away from it? What do we need to do? A couple of lessons from the life of Jacob. Firstly, I think, we, we recognize that it starts with honesty. It starts with honesty. Jacob's life started to turn the moment he was honest. I think what's true for Jacob is true for you and me. It starts with honesty. But Why? The Bible says that we are shaped and molded by what we admit. We are shaped and molded by what we admit. The reality is our honesty helps us, not God. It helps us. We're shaped and molded by what we admit. So let's be honest. If you pray honestly, are your prayers more earthly or more heavenly? The reality I've had to grapple with is that sometimes honesty means, okay, God, I know I need to think about this this way, but right now, I really want to think about it this way. Can you just give me a second? Or, God, I, I really know that I should want what you want, but the reality is I want what I want. 
is that prayer more, feels more earthly than heavenly, right? But what we need to remember is that if the best response that we can make in prayer is an honest prayer, then at very least in that moment, it allows us, the prayers, to become people of the Spirit. Why? Because prayer is simply talking to God. And if the best that you and I can do is a self-centered confession, well, at least we're involved in an honest, direct conversation with God. It starts with honesty. It shouldn't stop there. But we are shaped. We are molded by what we admit. And if we acknowledge that, then it at very least results in the first, for many of us, honest conversation that we've ever had. And what we see in the Jacob story is everything shifts from that moment. Starts with honesty. But clearly it can't stop there, right? We need to spot the earthly. The reality is it's not always apparent when what we're praying for is what we want it's natural, it's earthly, or whether it's what God wants. With this, I want to jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to go somewhere that I'm going to need some of you here to extend me some grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is about the natural and the spiritual. For Paul, the natural stands in opposition to the spiritual. Natural people, as I've said, are not necessarily ungodly people. If a person interprets life naturally, they are not necessarily sinful. They are what the Bible would call immature and ignorant. Fundamental difference between the two. Natural people are not carnal people. Now, what do you think we do how do you think we respond when a person prays naturally? It's not heavenly, but what does God do? I think 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 tells us what God does. Paul there says, listen, mercy was shown to me because I acted, what? In ignorance and unbelief. What do we do when someone prays naturally? What does God do? He just looks at them and he doesn't treat them as he would a carnal believer, a sinful believer. He just shows mercy. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He kind of extends the rope. He, he gives us more time. But make no mistake about it. If God's got his hookiness, he's going to reel us in. And that reeling in may well mean that we'll be broken at some point. Carnal is slightly different. A carnal believer... Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2, natural, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, carnal. A carnal believer is someone who's had the truth pointed out to them, but they're quite simply unwilling to engage and embrace what has been said. They're unwilling to do it. Let me give you an example. There was an old woman who was uh, kind of taken care of after the death of her husband by a family next door. And this family always used to take this old lady out on day trips with them. They were planning a picnic on the weekend. The lady found out about it, the old lady. She was pious but cranky, and uh, she was pretty miffed. Well, come the day of the picnic, the, the family realized that they hadn't invited the old lady, so they sent their young son to the old lady to invite her. You know what she said? 
It's too late. I've already prayed for rain. <laughs> the carnal person here knows when something is right and wrong, but ultimately prays for something out of fruits of the Spirit that aren't, well, doesn't pray out of the fruits of the Spirit, prays out of the complete opposite. It's carnal. Now, sometimes it's pretty easy to spot the prayers of a carnal person, but sometimes it's a little bit more difficult. Take, for example, my experience as a child. I remember as a child asking my mom for a pack of balloons. She said, no, I kind of took them anyway and soon wished I hadn't. I mean, what was I thinking of? She told me, no, I took them, and I was playing with the balloons in my house. I mean, go figure. How stupid can you get? I want to assure you I never did it again. Consequences made sure of that. But I distinctly remember my prayer. Oh, God, if I can get away with this one, I promise I'll never do it again. <laughs> what, what is that? On the one hand, I was a young child. I, I, it, it's childish. On, on the other hand, I actually knew what I should have done and what I shouldn't have done. See, sometimes when we talk about the carnal, it's pretty obvious. You get closer to the natural, it's not too obvious. I think in, in that area, you know what? It, 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 it becomes more common for us. It's easier to discern. But it's far harder for us to discern when we pray from the natural. It's not as easy for us to discern when we're praying from the natural. This is where I need you to show me some grace. Let's take what's going on in our nation right now. I've personally addressed over the last six months that growing gap between what I call convictional Christians and the secular mindset, and I've used terms like left, which, by the way, left is the opposite of right. It's a political term, <laughs> not a philosophical statement. I've used the term liberal to talk about morality. I I've talked about this. I've talked about, hey, we need to be careful because there is a secularizing mindset coming into the church from the left or the liberals. But I want to say that what we're seeing from the right is a secularizing mindset that's trying to influence the church, albeit from the political right. Convictional Christians recognize the earthly in Christian nationalism because it's secularizing our faith, albeit from the political right. And here's the reality. If we assimilate the Christian faith into our politics to the point where we are unable to draw the line between our heavenly faith and our natural love for country, then I'll tell you what will happen. We will be praying to God, even passionately, from an earthly, not from a heavenly perspective. And we are secularizing the church from the political right. Now, here's the problem. A lot of people in the evangelical church just don't see it. I can't believe how many emails I'm going to get for that this week. <laughs> you love your country. So you pray. Natural Christians pray. Is that sinful to love your country? No. Difference is what? Ignorance. See, like Jacob, natural prayers tend to express what we've concluded rather than being a careful plea for God to reveal how he sees things. Let me say it again. God has prepared a place for prayer, and it's hidden in Christ. And if we want to pray from God's perspective, we have to invite the Spirit to turn our natural focus 
from the earth to the things of heaven. And that applies to absolutely everything, including how we view our nation. And here's what I want to say. There can be a tragic consequence when God answers the natural prayer. There can be a tragic consequence on an individual, on a church, when we don't make praying according to what God wants a priority. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Last week I talked about this idea of God's arms embracing me, being a picture of me grasping hold of the posture for prayer is not me on my knees, but God sitting me on His. And I shared how I, how I had to view that metaphor of God's arms spread wide that, it, that was basically like the seraphim over the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this? And I talked about that pot of hidden manna that was brought in there that the Jews believe will be revealed when Elijah comes back. Well, the, that manna was collected at the end of the period where God was feeding them manna. And in Numbers chapter 11, God's people are there. They're being fed by God day and night by the manna, and they're sick to the back teeth of it. You can imagine the nutritionist saying, hey, we need a bit more of a varied diet here. God, can you please give us meat? Numbers 11 verse 3. So God gives them meat, but this is how the psalmist in Psalm 115, 106 verse 15 talks about it. He gave them their request but he sent leanness into their souls. When we pray for the natural, sometimes we get what we want, but it isn't what we need. Because it never fulfills us. Like Jacob, we'll find ourselves going back to God over and over again and saying, God, please bless me, please bless me, please bless me. And God is saying, don't you realize I've given you everything you wanted? And maybe then we'll get to the point of realizing that maybe what we wanted isn't actually what we needed. What we needed was to be satisfied with the heavenly things. What applies here for, a, you know, for an individual and a, and a nation in the Old Testament actually applies to the church in Revelation chapter 3. You say, the Spirit is saying to the church, Jesus saying to the church, you say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need anything. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, they thought they had it because in the material, everything was good. But the reality is the Spirit was saying, you don't have it at all. It's very interesting in the churches of Revelation. Do you know that the churches that were rebuked the hardest died the quickest? Wiped out the quickest? Do you know those that responded positively to what the Spirit said and survived the longest? See, the lesson in life is it's not necessarily easy to spot the earthly because it asks us to cut away at so many things that we've taken naturally. And that's why this third thing is so important. So what do we do if we recognize we're in a situation like this? We have to consider the heavenly. Considering the heavenly may mean on some things for us quite a lot of work. When the Spirit challenges an earthly approach, we likely need to figure out what the heavenly perspective is. What's the good news? The Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans. The Spirit is praying according to the heavenly already. The Spirit is working with the Father to ensure that His will for your life is done. 
But the reality is, if we have a natural view on some things, it may take some of us a little bit of work to get it sorted out. Why is that? Our natural world, our natural view of the world is driven by our race, it's driven by our ethnicity, it's driven by our language, it's driven by our gender, it's driven by our age, it's driven by our religious background, it's driven by our history, it's driven by our family situations, it's driven by economics. I can just keep going. We view the world in the way we do because of the experiences that we've had. And when God starts to unravel that, sometimes the best that we may be able to do is to acknowledge that we're confused about something, that we don't know how to pray about something, and we need the Spirit's leading to help us to pray. One of the greatest gifts that God has given to me is Vipka. Not just because she's a woman after God's own heart, but because I'm Welsh and she's German. You marry cross-culturally, folks, it's fun. All of a sudden, all of those traditions that you thought came from God on high, you realize didn't. I mean, we all know we'll be speaking English in heaven, right? <laughs> then you marry someone outside of your culture group, and then you just realize it isn't that easy. And then God had the, the sense of humor to dump us in America. <laughs> Go figure that out. But it's actually been really hard for me and really good for me. Because through embracing difference, through being thrust into environments where people think differently about things, I've had the golden opportunity to start to think, okay, God, I'm not too sure how I'm supposed to view this. And I really need your help. And for some of those things, it's been really, really hard. I think for some of us, when it comes to, God, how do I view my love for country in the context of my Christian faith? I want to suggest that the next couple of years for you may be really, really hard. But embrace it. Because I believe what will happen as a result of this is that your love for country will be as strong as it is right now, but you will have an idea of truth and identity that will take you from the natural view of you, of natural means of interpreting life in America right now to actually the supernatural where you will be able to know how to pray for your country and for your leaders. It's hard. Considering the heavenly isn't always easy, it takes some work. And I want to say to you, if you're dealing with whatever you're dealing with, you can contact our care team, you can contact our, our formation team, you can email me, and I will try, no matter what the issue is, to point you in the direction of things, materials, resources, where you can wrestle this through for yourself. Did you hear what I said? Wrestle this through for yourself. I am not going to spoon-feed you anything. I want you to think. Why? Because you have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Fourthly, I think when we go through this, what will happen at the end of this is that we will basically recommit ourselves spiritually. That's what Jacob did. Genesis 35, got rid of all the idols, everything else that was setting itself up in opposition to God. He got rid of them all and he said, okay, I'm yours Truly, I'm yours fully. 
That's what that is. Friends, there's a difference between confession and repentance. Confession is honesty. Repentance is turning around and walking in the way that God wants. And sadly, in our churches, we've made the two one and the same. They're not the same thing. Just because we're honest doesn't necessarily mean we get to the point of recommitment. Sadly, this is necessary. Repeat as required. (laughs) We're going to go through this over and over and over again because the reality is discipleship is a lifelong process. Once we deal with one issue, there'll be something else. But I'll tell you what, the joy comes from knowing that God is transforming us and knowing that we are more satisfied having worked stuff through than we've ever been in our lives. See, God has prepared a place of prayer even before we get on our knees. It's through the finished work of Christ that actually relocates you into the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And yes, you have these struggles. We all have these struggles where we interpret life from the natural, not sinful, from the natural. But thank God he's gifted us the Holy Spirit. That even when we don't know when our prayers are earthly or heavenly, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And God works in us to bring us to the point where we, if we are willing and yield, know his will. This is what I want to do. I want to invite the team to come back. And they're going to sing a song. And in that song, it talks about how we need to hear from God and be affirmed by God in all we say and do. And what I would like you to do as they sing this song is I would really like you to think about the the one issue that is on your mind and your heart right now. And regarding that one issue, I want to encourage you to say, okay, God, I think I'm praying the right way with this, but here's what I want. I, I want your Holy Spirit to come in and to just lead me in how to approach this. Show me the mind of Christ and give me the ability to let go of anything that is not of you so that I may be driven by things that are all of you. Father, I pray that as we wrap up this message, as we enter into a pivotal week for our nation, so much division. God, I pray that we would be a part of the solution by simply pursuing the mind of Christ. Help us to let go of the earthly. Draw us into the heavenlies. Open our eyes to see us hidden with you in Christ. And may we forever pray from that perspective. Do what you need to do, Father, to bring us there. In Jesus' name.